morning, Covenant College. It is my privilege this morning to introduce to you our chapel speaker. Uh, Jock McGregor hails from South Africa, and he's a protege of Francis Schaeffer, one of the most significant evangelical leaders of the last century and the founder of the Labrie Fellowship. Uh, Schaeffer and his wife opened the first Labrie community in Switzerland back in 1955, uh, but today there are a number of Labrie communities uh, throughout the world in Europe, Asia, uh, North and South America. All kinds of people, old and young, Christian and non-Christian, they come to Labrie with honest questions, questions um, about God and the significance of human life. Uh, they come to Labrie because their questions will be taken seriously. Uh, Jock worked at Labrie in England for 10 years, and then he and his wife, uh, Allison, moved to Rochester, Minnesota, and they've been directing the Rochester Labrie branch for the past 17 years. And I think a number of our students have been there as helpers over the years. Jock has lectured widely on many topics that bear on the relationship between um, Christianity and contemporary culture. He also helped found Beyond Eden, which is a Bible study for medical students and residents at the Mayo Clinic. He works very closely with Mayo physicians, helping them to think Christianly about faith and medicine. And Jock also serves as a ruling elder at Trinity Presbyterian Church. I actually got to know Jock uh, decades ago when I was a resident in internal medicine at the Mayo Clinic. He knew me as a bachelor trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, Jock, you'll see, looks like a regular white guy, but he's actually a fellow African, a great friend, and a dear brother in Christ. Uh, actually, in my residency days, he even tried to find me a wife, but failed miserably. No one is perfect. Jock is a wise man, and he has wise things to tell us. Please join me in welcoming Jock McGregor. So I'm not used to uh, covenant uh, traditions, but I suppose I should try to fit in. Thank you, Hans, and uh, thank you for your kind words, and thank you for the things you didn't say as well. <laughs> uh, I do very much appreciate being with you here this morning. Uh, as Hans said, uh, in the 30 years my wife and I have been involved in Labrie, we've had a, a great many uh, students from Covenant uh, come through our doors, and it's always been a, a wonderful thing. Uh, but it's wonderful to be here for the first time. Uh, we're very encouraged by the uh, <clears throat> desire from Covenant College to sort of renew and deepen uh, the long-standing relationship between the college and uh, Labrie Fellowship. Uh, as uh, Hans said, we have kept things pretty simple in Labrie uh, over the years. We're still relatively small. Uh, the Schaefers had a, a, a very a simple idea just to open up their home uh, and their lives uh, to seekers, to anyone who had questions uh, about the meaning of life, about the credibility of Christianity, about things that matter. And we try to continue doing that today. 
I think that's something that every Christian is called to. So uh, let's uh, <clears throat> look into the scriptures this morning. And uh, for uh, our text, I'd like us to uh, look at John 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 24 uh, through 29. <clears throat> I've been told that I have 20 minutes, which has made my wife very worried. Uh, she feels I can't barely say grace in under 20 minutes. <laughs> we'll see how we do. You can just sort of leave when you have to. Um, John 20, verse 24 to 29, is the very well-known story of Doubting Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them, that is the disciples, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see... In his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and place my hand onto his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's a familiar story, isn't it? Doubting Thomas. <clears throat> when Thomas hears these reports from the other disciples, that Jesus, who he knew had been crucified, that Jesus was risen from the dead, he's skeptical. He's not convinced at all. He's doubtful. And so he has come to be known in history as Doubting Thomas. But actually, I find this uh, more than a little unfair. The implication is that he should not have had questions, that he should have just believed. But I think that is not how faith works. We cannot really believe what we are not persuaded of in our hearts and minds. We cannot believe what we're pers not persuaded of. Thomas was just being honest. He is not a man determined to doubt in all events, camped out in the sort of skeptical position. And we meet folk like that, right? That's their dogmatic point, skepticism. Thomas is not that man. He is a man struggling to believe, but he has his doubts. And nor is he alone. Singling him out from among the other disciples is also, I think, very unfair, because they also had doubts. They all struggled, in fact, to grasp this amazing and wonderful new reality. And they 
all had to be persuaded. We see this clearly from the account recorded in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24, where Jesus' first appearance to the disciples on Easter Day, a week now before the events we're dealing with, that account goes like this. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself appeared among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? You know the word doubts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So you see, the disciples, all of them, were also incredulous. They thought they'd seen a ghost. And Jesus has to demonstrate to them by eating and by having them touch him physically to demonstrate that he is not a ghost. And then the facts, the reality begins to sink in. So Thomas was not the only one with initial doubts. Thomas, in fact, was just like the rest of the disciples, like all of us, in fact. He is simply a person walking the slow path to faith, from unbelief to belief. He's not essentially a doubter. He's a believer struggling to believe. And because he is just like us, we can learn some important lessons from his story. Firstly, we learn about God's attitude to those who are struggling to believe. There were many times during Jesus' three-year ministry with these disciples that they had exasperated him. They were slow to get with the program, muddled and uncertain. He often rebuked them. O ye of little faith, he would say. But now we have Jesus arguably at the crowning moment of his earthly ministry, having won atonement on the cross, defeated death in the resurrection, now appearing before his people, a loving Savior, the majestic Lord, the anointed King. He had every right to expect that they would fall immediately at his feet in worship. So how does he react when they have trouble believing? 
as he yell at them, O ye of little faith? Not a bit of it. And here we see the heart of God, the good shepherd who loves the sheep, longs to bring in every lost, lost one of them. Jesus reaches out to them and goes to really extraordinary lengths to help them struggle through their incredulity and doubt. He avails himself of them. Physically, touch me, he says. Helping them find reasons to believe. And to Thomas, no less. He singles him out. And knowing what Thomas had already said the week before, I'll never believe, he proactively offers exactly what Thomas was asking for. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas does. People sometimes ask me, where is God? I have a simple answer. He's looking for you. Are you looking for him? Jesus was looking for Thomas. He sought him out and helped him find reason to believe. And God is everywhere revealing himself and is everywhere giving us reasons to believe. Faith and reason are not opposed. Of course, coming to believe anything is a process, a process that involves both reason and faith. Reason that persuades our minds and faith that commits our hearts and our lives. Coming to believe in God is exactly the same process. And God is completely invested in that process, wanting us to understand and grasp with our minds what is reasonable and true, wanting us to commit to it from our hearts in faith. And that is why he goes the extra mile for Thomas and the other disciples as well. And he does no less for us. Jesus came, yes, in love to die for our sins. But he also came in love to reveal God to us. And God has revealed himself in manifold ways. He's revealed himself in his amazing creation. I got up this morning with this magnificent view. He's revealed himself in the wonder of human personality. He's revealed himself in his word. He's revealed himself in his people. He's revealed himself in Jesus. He's given us so many good and sufficient reasons to believe. The question is not, where is God? The question is, am I really looking for him? Am I prepared to respond to the evidence he gives us? Am I prepared to receive what he has offered? Am I ready to put my finger in his side, if that's what it takes? Thomas was, and Jesus knew it, and that's why Jesus went the extra mile. That's why Jesus met him halfway with his demands. And that brings me to my second point. We, each one of us walk our individual path to faith. It's different for each person. There's no one-size-fits-all coming to faith. For some, it's quick and simple. For others, it's long and tortuous. But God is patient and accommodating. 
That is why he has left so many different witnesses, so many different signs, so many compelling reasons. All the disciples walked with Jesus, but each one of them walked a different path to faith. We all know about Peter's journey, right? We often talk about that. Well, Thomas had his own path too. It was unique to him. He was not there when Jesus first appeared to the others on Easter Sunday. And he had some pretty high standards of proof. He could have just said, well, I wasn't there. Seeing is believing. If I see it, I'll believe. But he upped the ante. He said, I'll only believe if I see his hands and if I can put my finger in his hands and if I can put my finger in his side. He had some pretty high standards for proof. He wanted to believe, but he wanted to be persuaded. Now the point is, why wouldn't seeing be enough? For most of us, probably that would have been sufficient. But coming to belief, you see, is highly personal. It's not a formula where you get to a certain point and everyone just crosses the line when they reach that point. It's highly personal. Each one is different. God knows that. Jesus knows that. And that's why he meets Thomas where Thomas is at. Apologetics, evangelism, mission... These are always, in the final analysis, personal. And we have to be prepared to meet people where they are at. Finding them on the path they are walking, hearing their stories, listening to their questions, speaking into their doubts and their concerns. Prepackaged answers may not be what connects. Jesus went the extra mile. Jesus found the path that Thomas was on and met him there. And so should we. There's a third thing to note here. Notice that when Jesus gives Thomas what he is asking for, put your finger in my side. That's what you wanted. Suddenly, Thomas finds that he no longer needs that. He confesses immediately. He wanted, he thought he wanted, to be able to touch Jesus. And Jesus offers himself to be touched. But Thomas, in the end, doesn't touch him. He's seen enough, and he believes. And he confesses his new faith in one of the strongest and most emphatic confessions to be found in all Scripture. My Lord and my God. You see, we don't always know ourselves as well as we think. We all have an idea of what the path to faith would look like for us, what we think we need to know, to believe, to be persuaded of, what we think would be sufficient reason for faith. But God knows us better, and often the encounter we most need takes us by surprise. Faith sneaks up on us. We can barely understand what took place ourselves. And suddenly, we can find ourselves surprised by joy. People always have their lists of questions, just like Thomas. But Schaefer used to say, we need to look for the question behind the question. We're complex people. Bodies and souls, hearts and minds, and our path is never simply an intellectual process. We bring our experiences, our attitudes, our emotions, our hurts, 
and our histories with us. Deep layers that need to be navigated over time and with care. Of course, we should always give straightforward answers to straightforward questions. But don't be surprised if that does not always simply do the trick. Sometimes we have to look deeper, build relationship, be patient. We can't look inside Thomas's head, of course, but it isn't that hard to speculate. Notice how emphatic Thomas is. Unless I see and touch, I will never believe. You sense the strong emotion there? Where is that coming from? Well, put yourself in his shoes for a minute. You're already stricken with grief over the crucifixion of your master, whom you faithfully followed for three years. Now, the one evening when you happen to not be with the other disciples, Jesus appears to them, and you miss out. Now, we don't know what he was, why he wasn't there. Maybe he got caught in traffic. We don't know. But he missed out. And all week now, he's listening to all these guys telling him with incredible excitement and joy about this amazing experience that they had. And he didn't. No doubt going on and on about it. I can imagine it got rather irritating. And I don't think it's a stretch to think that Thomas felt hurt. Jesus showed up for all these guys. But what about me? Does he not care about me? So it makes perfect sense that Thomas would infuse his perfectly reasonable skepticism with a somewhat more unreasonable attitude. And don't we all tend to do that? A lot. Mixing reasonable questions and doubts with unreasonable emotions and attitudes tied to hurts and history. And that would explain why when Jesus does show up, he immediately calls out Thomas specifically and reveals that he's fully aware of Thomas's demands and that he, Jesus, is fully willing to accommodate Thomas. And so suddenly Thomas realizes that he's not being forgotten, that Jesus does care for him and his struggle to believe. And so his whole attitude changes. He finds that he no longer, in fact, needs to touch. He's seen. But more importantly, he has seen that God cares about him and his journey to faith. And that's enough. And so he believes and he confesses, my Lord, my God. Jesus, you see, has addressed the question behind the question. And so must we. In one way, I suppose, the story of Thomas is a bit discouraging. A man who had walked with Jesus, seen miracles, witnessed the raising of Lazarus, and yet he struggled to believe. We all know people in our own lives, I'm sure, that have heard it all before, seem to have a very long list of questions and preconditions, and always fall back on a rather dogmatic, I'll never believe. 
But it is exactly here that I find the story of Thomas so encouraging. Because here we see that nobody is beyond the reach of God. That he will meet us where we are at. That he cares about giving us good reasons to believe. And that we never know what might make the difference. As we love the people in our lives that struggle with belief, let's follow Jesus' lead. Find out where they're at. Listen to their concerns. Answer their questions to the best of your ability. Look for the question behind the question. Be patient and attentive to their stories and the path that they are on. And don't be surprised when faith dawns unexpectedly. Amen. Let's close now in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that reveals your heart. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus' interaction with Thomas, we have such an illustration that you are the good shepherd that seeks out the lost sheep, that you meet us on the paths wherever you find us, that you are interested in persuading us in heart and mind, giving us good reasons, reasons rooted in your truth, but also in your love and your care for us as individuals. Lord, thank you for our brother Thomas, what he opens up to us. And be with us, Father, in our lives, even with the doubts and questions we may still have. Help us to trust you, to walk deeper into your word, to hear your answer to us. And for those in our families, among our friends and colleagues, who are still walking that path and are a long way off, give us patience, help us to have a love for them, and a sensitivity uh, to meet them where they are at, that we might become uh, your vessels to share your light and truth into their minds and hearts, that they too may come to believe and to receive new life in yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.